I'm Milena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Interviews are an essential component to get a job at a tech company. However, they can also affect diversity and inclusion efforts due to the biases and preconceptions that the people involved have. Aileen Lerner, CEO of Interviewing.io, is making bias-free hiring a reality. Aileen explained how bias in hiring can be tackled using technology. We also talked about why resumes are not a great hiring tool and what she has learned from studying thousands of interviews. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Aileen Lerner, co-founder and CEO of Interviewing.io, is joining us today. Aileen, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You and your company, Interviewing.io, help companies hire engineers using people's past interview performance. But at a broad spectrum, let's talk about interviewing in the tech space first. Sure. One of the first things you need to do to get an interview is to submit your resume and things like that. I've seen you in the past say resumes are not a great hiring tool. Why do you think that is? Well, I have so many thoughts on the subject. Yeah, so resumes are not that useful for hiring. I think that they are generally not very useful, but especially not very useful for software engineers. Um, I think software engineering is a unique field. It doesn't take that much to actually learn how to code. Um, of course, becoming very good at coding is another thing. But, you know, there are plenty of people that are entering the field more and more these days that don't have a traditional four-year degree. And that actually makes it really hard to spot who's good. You know, if, if you rely just on where people went to school, you're going to be extremely limited in your pool and um, you're going to be excluding all manners of self-taught engineers, uh, potentially, you know, people that are still very good, but through whatever set of circumstances didn't end up going to an MIT or a Stanford uh, or a school like that. And, you know, I don't know if this is your experience, but uh, even with all the focus on pedigree, uh, so hiring in Silicon Valley and, you know, at some of the giants uh, like, like Microsoft, uh, Facebook, Google and beyond, I've still worked with plenty of amazing engineers who come from very non-traditional backgrounds. One of the best engineers I ever worked with dropped out of some really crappy state school. He went for a semester, mm -hmm. then he decided it was a waste of money. He left, he taught himself and um, he's amazing. And everybody knows a person like that. And I think in part because we all have this anecdotal evidence, hiring with resumes kind of feels gross to everyone, but there isn't that much data to back it up. This is actually something that I was very frustrated with, and I decided to do some data analysis. And back when, so my background, I used to write code for a living, and then I kind of fell into recruiting. And the first company where I worked as a recruiter was a company called TrialPay. So I looked at everybody that actually applied to trial pay and interviewed and worked there and got offers, basically our entire funnel for a back-end generalist role over the course of a year. And I looked at all sorts of markers, you know, trying to find what attributes of someone's resume might matter when it comes to whether they ended up getting a job or an offer at least. Mm -hmm. So it looked at things like where they went to school, whether they'd worked at a top company, their GPA, their years of experience, 
uh, how succinctly they described what they did at their previous positions, uh, and the number of grammatical errors and typos on their resumes. Mm -hmm. And what was crazy, and I still can't, and this took a lot of work because then I was sitting every night in bed, marking up people's resumes with a metaphorical like red pen and finding all sorts of typos. Because I made all retentive, it was kind of enjoyable. (laughs) But what I ended up finding, the only three things that mattered were number of typos and grammatical errors, how succinctly somebody described what they did, you know, can a layperson understand what they did or did they lean very heavily on buzzwords? And then where they worked, you know, were the only three. But the thing that mattered by far and away more than anything was the number of typos. So this made me extremely suspicious about resumes as a source of truth for anything. And then I actually ended up doing a follow-up study a little later. By then, uh, rather, I had started a recruiting business and I was looking at a number of the candidates I had worked with and of course, you know, I knew whether I was able to place them or not and how well they had done at their employers after I had placed them. Mm-hmm. So I took their resumes, I stripped off their names and uh, took off some other biographical information, making it really hard to kind of figure out who they were. And then I asked, I think, around 150 or 200 engineers, uh, engineering managers and recruiters whether they would interview that person. So, you know, we showed each person some subset of resumes, ended up with quite a few data points. And the crazy thing was not only could people not identify who the strong candidates were, but they also fundamentally all disagreed with one another about what a good candidate even looked like in the first place. So after that, you know, kind of had this hunch that resumes don't tell you everything you need to know, and they're really focused on one homogenous type of candidate. After those two things, I just wanted to set resumes on fire. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned several interesting things in your response and the one that I want to start with is you said you were in engineering and you fell into recruiting how was that (laughs) Uh, it's a common story I think if you ask a lot of recruiters uh, whether they plan to do recruiting most of them will say no they plan to do something else and then somehow they ended up uh, getting ensnared in this web but in my case the story was I was working as an engineer at this very small company At the time, I think it was about 20 people, and the eng team was four or five, and there wasn't anybody there whose job it was to do recruiting. So I ended up kind of taking on that role in addition to continuing to write code Mm -hmm. just to make my life and my coworkers' lives a little less bad. Because, uh, you know, there are four or five engineers and we were constantly getting interrupted. We were all trying to write code, but then we were all doing technical interviews. We were doing resume screens. Um, we were doing our own scheduling in a lot of cases. So it was just terrible. You know, you're, you're trying to do your real job and then you keep getting interrupted. Although hiring is technically your real job, sometimes it doesn't feel that way. So I just thought, you know what, screw it. I'll make a spreadsheet and we can all get back to work. Now, in retrospect, that was really naive, but that kind of got me on the crack. (laughs) And uh, I just got a taste for this field. And not only did I realize that I enjoy it a lot more than engineering, although, you know, I I didn't really want to spend the rest of my life writing code, but like, it was also something where I just started to see how broken it was. And it made me angry. And I really wanted to do something to fix it. Though at the time, I didn't really even know what I could do. And what a lot of people don't realize is that also recruiting and HR is a technical job. That's also the insight that I got from speaking to Kathleen Hogan, the EVP of HR at Microsoft. So I guess to you, it also is not a lot of writing code, but it's still a technical area, right? I think that it ought to be. That's not to say that, you know, I get a lot of questions from engineers who are thinking about entering recruiting and they're asking, you know, 
uh, whether this is something where they'll still get to be technical. And then, of course, I'm getting uh, questions from people who aren't engineers who want to enter recruiting asking, do I need to write code to be a good technical recruiter? Mm -hmm. And my answer is always, recruiting is fundamentally a sales job. So you can have somebody who doesn't know anything about tech being a great recruiter, and you can have somebody who's a great engineer being a terrible recruiter. But knowing something about your domain can certainly help you. And I think that the fact that I had an engineering background in particular helped me immensely, in part because I don't think I'm a very good salesperson, so I needed to have something else that could set me apart and give me kind of an edge. The way I kind of, even when I got into recruiting, so I mentioned I was at this company, TrialPay, and they gave me this interesting hybrid role because I was an engineer, where in addition to doing standard recruiting stuff, like trying to get candidates in, thinking about employer branding, thinking about events, thinking about university recruiting, all of these uh, more standard recruiter tasks. I was also the person that was the first line of defense when it came to technical interviews to kind of take the heat off the engineering team. So it ended up being, I think like that year, I interviewed like five or 600 people, uh, which uh, cured me of my love for (laughs) interviews definitively. Um, Although I still did, once we started interviewing IO, I still did quite a few, probably did a hundred or something. I don't know, a lot. But that was also something that got me thinking about how messed up resume-based recruiting was because I got the opportunity to choose who I interviewed and choose how I would spend my time. And I would purposely interview people that looked weird on paper just so I could see if my theories about resumes being bullshit were correct. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time they were. But to answer your question, technical recruiting done well should be a technical role. Even if you're not a coder, I think just having an appreciation for what engineers do every day is really important. It shows some amount of respect for the field and respect for your candidates when they're talking to you about their projects. And even if you don't understand all the details, and in fact, many engineers won't understand the details of a given engineer's project either because there's so much stuff out there and you're not going to know all of it. But if you can just know the broad strokes and put the stuff they're saying into context, and just be able to tell at a first pass, you know, is this person full of shit or not, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's something that, that's tremendously valuable. And, it, you know, there's the 80-20 rule. Like, it doesn't take that much effort to be okay at it. Being great at it is hard, of course, and you shouldn't be doing technical interviews if you're not technical. But at least being able to carry a conversation um, with your candidates about their past work and genuinely take an interest in it is something that everyone can do. I always used to encourage recruiters to just take a Udacity class. It doesn't have to be anything too involved. Or Coursera class, just find an intro to programming class. Maybe it's Harvard CS50. Maybe it's something else to just try it out and see how it feels. And um, a friend of mine used to do this thing called Tech for Tech Recruiters, where we would just get together and answer recruiters' questions about how the internet worked uh, to the best of our ability. And we were really like happy when we found out that a lot of recruiters were really engaged and wanted to know more about it, but just didn't have an avenue in which they could ask these questions and not be judged. So, you know, if you're a recruiter and you're listening to this, you should ask one of the engineers on the team that you're recruiting for some questions, and they'll probably be really, really happy to tell you more about what they're doing and and fit it into the broader context of tech. Yes. And another thing that people might not realize with resumes is, well, in tech, we still are not as inclusive and diverse as we could be. And the fact that we use resumes when applying online, companies have these systems, I think, where they 
filter out or I guess they raise the resumes mm -hmm. that look promising, right? And if the people that hire, they come from top schools and things like that, their filter system might automatically look for these things, right? Yeah, and it sucks. I really wish that all systems that automatically filtered resumes would die a fiery death. Like it's really just facilitating wrong behavior on the part of companies and encouraging bad behavior on the part of candidates. Like I knew this guy who would look at a job description and then he would take all the keywords from that job description and add them into his resume in white, right? In like tiny font. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> when the system was looking for keywords, it would pick them up, right? That's not how hiring should be. Hiring should be about smart people and, you know, people that, that are passionate about what you're doing and that's it. And I think everything else is, is bad. That's a really clever hack though. <laughs> it is really, don't, yeah, I mean, God, like if you're, if you're applying to a company where you have to do that, maybe like second guess yeah. some of the about that company I don't know there, there's no easy answer yeah I mean it's just to illustrate how ridiculous it can get or sometimes you meet five out of the ten requirements and like listed there yeah so that's maybe why people do these things but yeah definitely don't I wouldn't do that but I just thought it was yeah, it's hilarious right <laughs> yeah it's an interesting way to illustrate how crazy the system is that you have to do these things to get noticed the thing that really sucks too is if you look at job descriptions by the time they get from the horse's mouth which is an engineering manager to a candidate it's like a game of telephone they've been through 10 revisions and you know if you're a hiring manager and you're trying to explain to a non-technical technical recruiter what you want right you probably want a smart person that can code right and can communicate and isn't a douchebag like that's that's probably what you want mm -hmm. and you know you talk to somebody that doesn't can't really use their domain expertise to figure out what that means so then you have to come up with proxies and you're like okay I want five years of experience and it's like well do you really want that or do you just want somebody that codes like they have five years of experience exactly right but you have to say five years and then you have to say like Oh, um, well, okay, if you, if you, maybe if you have a startup, you want somebody that's worked on um, building for the web before, right? They've, they've built something. But maybe even that doesn't matter. But then somehow you go from, I want a smart person who's maybe built something for the web to, I want an engineer who has five years of experience and has worked in React and in Angular and in Python. It's like, you don't actually give a shit about any of these things most of the time, mm -hmm. right? And it's really, really frustrating. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've seen with our customers that interviewing IO is kind of curing them of that a little bit and being like, do you really want this? What if we could just deliver you really smart people? And then they're like, oh shit, okay, maybe we don't really want all of this. So that feels really good, just kind of debunking some of these absurd requirements. And of course, every job description says they want someone who's uh, a team player and detail-oriented and whatever the hell, and none of that actually means anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting very, very hateful. I don't mean to be. I hate so much stuff about this. Yeah, there's a, a lot of room to improve this process, which brings me to talking about your company interviewing IO because it's solving this problem by tackling bias in hiring among other things. One of the things that I saw in a video for a presentation that you gave is the component of gender masking the interviews. Can you explain this for those that don't know what it is? Yeah, well, why don't I give a bit of background just about what the company does, and then I'll get back to the masking of gender in interviews, yes. which is one of the cooler things that we've done. I'm really excited to talk about it. So interviewing IO helps companies hire engineers, as you said. The thing that we do, which is pretty unique, is that we say resumes are stupid and we don't want to use them, and instead we're going to look at how people have done 
in a series of technical interviews up until now. So we actually provide engineers with free anonymous technical interview practice. And when I say practice, I mean not you know solving some coding challenge in your spare time, but actually getting a live interview with a senior engineer. A lot of our interviewers work at Google and Facebook and Microsoft, AWS, Dropbox, Airbnb, like all these really great companies um, with a high bar that uh, you know set the standard for how other companies do their interviews. So once you're a user of our platform, you can just start booking these interviews. The other person doesn't know who you are. They come prepared with a question. You do your best. You get some actionable feedback after each interview. And if you mess up, it's okay because nobody knows who you are. So, you know, that that's kind of something we're very, very proud of, um, especially, you know, for people that maybe haven't been socialized in how to do well in technical interviews. This is something that's very powerful because it gives you room to fail. Although even if you are socialized, a lot of our users are uh, very senior engineers at companies like Google and Facebook. And they come to us because they're even more scared of messing up than someone who's more junior because you have this huge brand behind you and everyone's expecting the world of you. And then if you can't reverse a binary tree at the drop of a hat, everyone's going to think you're an idiot, right? So it's it's horrifying and it, yeah. it's uh, something that can paralyze you. So, you know, we have uh, this platform where people practice, but the practice in addition to being its own end is also a way for us to uh, figure out who's ready to talk to great companies. So when a candidate um, has done well in a series of these interviews, our platform lets them unlock the company portal where they can look at all the companies that we work with and on demand book real interviews on our platform with these companies that are still anonymous. So if you want to work with Lyft, let's say you just press a button and you have an interview with Lyft, you don't have to apply online, you don't have to go through a recruiter, you don't have to bother your friends to refer you in if you're fortunate enough to have friends that work at these companies. You just press a button, you have a real interview that's anonymous. At the end of that interview, if you do well, you essentially go on site. So it's a lot faster, um, hopefully a lot more pleasant, and certainly a lot less biased, mm-hmm. which is why you know employers are generally stoked to work with us. And one of the nice things is when you have all this interview data, your hit rate is going to be really good because you actually know how people do in interviews instead of having to guess based on how they look on paper. So to get to, as I promised, to get to the part about uh, voice masking, we built something I'm really proud of, which is this real-time voice modulation library where we can um, take a man's voice and make it sound like a woman's voice, take a woman's voice and make her potentially sound like a man. And what's really nice about this is that unlike what you might expect, the end product isn't someone that sounds like a serial killer, but (laughs) rather it's uh, somebody uh, that sounds like a human being of a different gender. It took quite a bit of work to to get this right and we're still working on it. It's not perfect, but it's, it's pretty damn good. So we turn that on for employers that ask for it. And then all of the interviews that that employer that does on our platform are modulated, which means that for the interviewer, the candidate's gender is completely opaque. And as I was watching you give this demo of this, I thought it was awesome. And I was also expecting women do better once they sounded like men and men would do worse if they sounded like a woman. But it was actually not true. Men still did did better than women. Men still did better. Yes. Mm-hmm. Why? Why did you find this? Yeah. So, I mean, I had the same hypothesis as you. I also thought, you know, this conversation about bias in interviews is so loud. And certainly, uh, you know, there's probably some bias against women. So if we make them sound like men, that should all go away. 
Well, I wish that were the magic bullet, but it's not. Here's here's what we ended up seeing. So despite um, having their voices masked, women, as you said, still did worse. And that left us scratching our heads because in my mind, you know, obviously there's nothing that makes me think that women should be worse at programming computers than men. And here's what we found. We dug into the data and we saw that most women, so as I mentioned on the platform, we have two kinds of interviews. We have practice interviews, and then we have real interviews with real companies. Many women on the platform, when they did poorly in an interview, ended up quitting. So they didn't come back to practice after that first poor showing. And in fact, women quit after a poor interview seven times as often as men. So that was really surprising. And when we took away that data, we took away those initial bad interviews for both men and, and for women, um, we discovered that there was no difference in performance. So once you look at people that came back more than once, essentially, or maybe it was more than twice, I can't remember. But, um, you know, once people that got over the hump and, and actually uh, kept practicing, they did not do any worse. But the fact that women were quitting at such an exorbitantly higher rate than men was perplexing to me and uh, has very real and very stark implications for the gender gap in tech, right? So one of the things that we're excited to see, and this is something that we haven't shipped yet, but uh, want to ship and are kind of working on, is this notion of interventions, right? So telling our users, maybe whether they're men or they're women, or maybe even designing some experiments around gender and saying, hey, you know what, it's okay to mess up. In technical interviews, everybody messes up. The fact is most people mess up their first interview when they're rusty. It's just that men, for whatever reason, completely keep going. Uh, <laughs> my ex-husband used to say, I, I shared this data with him, and he, uh, he used to work at Google. He's moved on from there now, but he was there, and it actually took him three tries to get into Google, I hope he's not mad that I share this on, on air, but took him three tries. And I asked him, I'm like, well, you know, how did that feel? Like, why didn't you quit after the first interview? Yeah. And he said, well, I've always known that I'm an idiot. So I'm comfortable with that, right? It was, it's just like, it was my job to trick Google into thinking I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, that's an so, interesting way of perceiving the situation. I think it's liberating if, if you take that stance, all of a sudden the world is your oyster if you just kind yeah. of accept that you're an idiot, which he's not. But <laughs> Yeah, and I, I wonder where this comes from, like education or like where did this fear of stop trying come from in women? I guess it's a difficult question to answer, to get the root. Yeah, it's one that I probably shouldn't even attempt to because I don't have any more data than anybody else. Yeah. But, you know, whatever the reason is, I want to be part of fixing it. Yes, but I like your idea of putting a message in the UI or even with a real case. For example, me, I also didn't get into Microsoft on the first time. There can be like a short story of me with my picture, like, hey, this is Edena, an engineer at Microsoft. She didn't get in at Microsoft <laughs> after her first interview or some of those testimonials. Yeah, I think that would be extremely powerful. In fact, there is a site that I saw. It was really great. It was people talking about how they failed to get into one top tier tech company and then got hired by another one. Right. Yeah. They're like, oh, you know, I messed up at Twitter and then I ended up at Yelp. Or I messed up at Uber and ended up at Lyft. Some of this, I think, is just the nature of technical interviewing. The outcomes are not deterministic. Yeah. And that's another thing that I wish women or really anybody else who's quitting because they had a bad performance um, should, should realize is that just because you do badly in these things doesn't mean it's you. Exactly. It means that the system is kind of broken and you have to learn to play the game a little. You know, I hope that we can empower some people to play the game a bit better, especially if they didn't have a head start. Or that you are not the only one because maybe people all they see in their Facebook feed 
are the success and happy stories of, hey, I, I got into Twitter, I got into Google, but they don't see like, I got rejected from Apple and Microsoft. All they see is the positive outcome. That's exactly right. Yeah. We actually, on our platform, we started doing this thing. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a step. It's not, not as good as what you proposed. But we have a thing where if both parties in a practice interview agree, they can showcase that interview to the general community. So you still have to log in to see it, but you know it's it's public to to all interviewing I/O users. So some users have been really generous with their interviews, even their bad ones. But you know one of the first interviews we shared was actually good; it was a success, and we posted it. And then I started getting this feedback from a disproportionately high number of female users, where they're like, "Whoa, I didn't realize what a good interview sounded like." You know, I know how to solve this question. But, you know, I would have frozen up or I wouldn't have been able, now that I hear what it sounds like, I know that I can do that. And I don't have to be perfect. My answer, I don't have to come up with the most elegant solution first. I can do the brute force and then the interviewer will kind of like talk me through it and it's okay to not know everything. And that's like... It's stuff that, you know, you and I know because we've been through the gauntlet. (laughs) Yes, because that was my problem at first. I would be just quiet after getting this question and then I would just answer it and try to give the best answer. But then it would be like all that time that I was quiet, like what was I thinking and things like that. So my friend would tell me, I really love to play board games. So he was like, this is just like a game and these are the rules. You have to talk about everything you're thinking. You have to come up. With several solutions, you can start with the worst one and then build up from that, interact with the interviewing. So I approached it in that way and that helped me get through it. Yeah, and that's the right way to approach it. But it's something that I think people don't necessarily know. And it sucks because really everybody screws up on these things, whether they're men or women. And somehow, you know, I don't want to generalize that hard, but at least our data says that for whatever reason, men are maybe less scared and intimidated by rejection. Although, you know, a friend of mine was, I told him about this data and he's like, it makes sense. You know, have you ever tried dating as a man? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. you get a lot of rejections, I guess. Right. And you you keep going. Yeah, you move on. (laughs) So let's talk about the interview practice portion. I assume is remote interview practice, right? That's right. It's all on our platform. Uh, we have a really nice all-in-one kind of interview solution. So in a typical phone interview with a company, you'd probably use a coding editor, and then you'd also use Skype or a phone. Of course, uh, Skype or phone doesn't lend itself to anonymity, and it certainly doesn't lend itself to being modulated in real time. Mm-hmm. So we had to build our own solution. Um, we actually... Just to give a shout out, within Interviewing IO, we use this amazing interview tool called CoderPad, which um, I know a lot of companies use for their interviews as well. I don't think Microsoft does yet, but they should because it's the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're, you're like, whatever. It, it really is. Um, I'll take a note of that. <laughs> but we use that. Then we use Twilio for audio. And it starts out as VoIP, but we give people the option to fall back to phone. Mm-hmm. But instead of having to provide your phone number, we just spin up a conference uh, dynamically and then give people a number and a pin to call in. I see. Uh, so everything's on the platform. We also have a whiteboard, text chat really everything you need to do technical interviews. And we record everything so your interview is then yours to keep forever. Um, And you can watch it and share it if you want or not and hopefully use it to improve and help others improve as well. And then at the end of each interview, there's a feedback step. 
So your interviewer will be rating you on things like your technical ability, your communication ability, your problem-solving ability. They're also going to be giving you freeform feedback, just general notes about what you can do better next time. Mm -hmm. And then the most important question we ask them is, if this were a real interview, would you advance this person to the next round? And then that's a yes or a no. Now, the, the thing that's kind of unique about our platform is that feedback is symmetric. You know, in a real interview setting, your interviewer is reviewing you, but you're probably not reviewing them. On our platform, both sides review each other, and then they don't see each other's feedback until both of them have filled it in. So an interviewee will be reviewing an interviewer's um, question quality, how good they were at actually being engaged and leading them to the solution. You know, the, the thing that's the worst is when you're getting interviewed by someone and you know they're like sitting there reading Reddit, right? Or like texting someone. Yeah, that has happened to me. And uh, I even pointed it out because I'm like, there's no way you're writing interview <laughs> feedback. So, There's no way. So I caught him and he, he apologized and I'm like, this is ridiculous. Right? Yeah. So, you know, this is something that we hope helps our interviewers and also company interviewers, if you're in our real pool, get better. And we also ask people some secret stuff, like, how do you think you did? Which we don't share with the interviewer, but then we can correlate that back to how they actually did mm -hmm. and do a little bit of data analysis. Turns out that almost everybody has imposter syndrome, which shouldn't be a surprise yeah. to anybody. And that's gender independent, right? Everybody thinks they I used to have all these assumptions. I would tell my friends whenever they say at the end, thank you for your time, it means they didn't like you. So <laughs> I, I didn't have enough data to back it up, but I'm pretty sure like when they say thank you for your time, it's uh, you didn't do that well. That actually gives me an idea for a blog post. We could, you know, we have the data, we can just like run it and see if that's actually true. Oh my God. Yeah, that would be great. I look forward to reading that blog post, finally have some data to back it up. Yeah, I'm convinced that uh, as an aside, I think that uh, the best blog posts are the ones that confirm like your little insights about the world especially if they're like cynical insights about the world if you can confirm someone's like cynical outlook with data you're gonna have a winner <laughs> yeah. so at interviewing io like you mentioned earlier you're looking at the data of the results of the interviews what is some example of the data points that can give you an insight to predict how well a candidate will do in future interviews Yeah, so we, you know, I mentioned what our feedback forms look like. So we're essentially taking a weighted average of some of those things. So uh, the questions we ask about technical ability, communication ability, and problem solving let you respond on a scale of one to four. And then would you advance this person to the next round as a yes, no. So we have a weighted average of those things. And then that weighted average is in turn adjusted for interviewer strictness. And the way that works, um, and forgive me, this explanation is going to be a bit hand-wavy because I didn't build this part of the system. My illustrious co-founder did that. Um, he comes from this video games background, and in video games, a lot of the time you're ranking players against other players, whether it's in chess or in StarCraft or any number of other competitive games. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of tricky to figure out how to do this with interviews because an interview is fundamentally not adversarial, even if it sometimes feels like it is. An interview, you know, you're not competing against your interviewer. So instead, we looked at all the interviewees that a given interviewer had uh, interviewed, and we kind of pitted them against each other and did that repeatedly. So we have this script that runs every three hours, takes these weighted averages, and then kind of adjusts, not just for strictness, but, you know, sees how interviewees that you've interviewed then do with other interviewers. And makes this giant amalgam of all that data and spits out a percentile. 
So what ends up happening is that rather than just depending on one interview, which can be pretty unreliable, we have this aggregate score, which keeps getting refined the more interviews that you do and you weigh recency very heavily. Mm -hmm. So if you get better, then you know you can always jump into the top performer pool. So the idea is that because we have some redundant data and uh, more than one data point, we can predict much more reliably than a single interview whether you're going to actually end up doing well. In fact, one of the things that we looked at was how the same person performs from interview to interview. And the results of that were pretty shocking for me. I kind of expected that people would do badly at the beginning and get better. And that happens a bit. And certainly, you know, people that aren't as familiar with technical interviewing do get tremendously better as they get used to the format. But even within that, and especially with senior people, there's just a lot of oscillation. So if you look at how the same person does, maybe after their first interview, which is almost always a throwaway, how they do in subsequent interviews just feels so arbitrary because uh, even the best people mess up an interview one in every five, one in every 10 times. And that's the absolute best ones. Most people mess up a lot more than that. And these are people that are working at Google and Facebook and companies like that and Microsoft and you know the companies that you typically associate with having a very strong brand. They just kind of, on that day, when they happen to be talking to this company, the stars aligned in a way that made sense. That's not to say that technical interviews are entirely meaningless. Certainly, I want to see a format that's a little bit more deterministic. But what I am trying to say is that in aggregate, that data is a lot more powerful and a lot more fair than it is just as a single data point. And it certainly also helps, for example, in bias. If I'm a woman and they know I'm a woman, like, are they actually considering my ideas and listening to me because that can be a potential feedback if you notice that the interviewer which is a man tends to get feedback from the women where like I feel like my idea wasn't heard that can also show interesting things I think I mean I think it's complicated yes I've seen feedback where uh, female interviewees will rate their female interviewers particularly harshly right yeah yeah, that's an, I don't know why that happens. I think that this is such a complicated issue. And, you know, one thing we can do is try to fix every little thing and make everything fair. Or we can just take these, like, either we can try to solve every bias, or we can just try to take them off the table entirely and create a mechanism where it's not even possible to have them and where you really are just rating people on mm-hmm. ability, which is maybe like a shortcut, but one that, you know, we're pretty bought into and we think is if something's going to work, kind of double down on the idea that mm-hmm. this is going to be the thing. Another thing that happens during this interview is sort of the culture fit assessment. There's a known test called the beer test, where the interviewer asks themselves, would I have a beer with this person? Would I be their friend and things like that? What do you think of this assessment? Yeah, I think that that assessment, if it happens, tends to happen on site more than it happens during a technical phone screen, just because one in the technical phone screen, not that much of the time spent together is social, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, you're just kind of heads down together on a problem. Now, that can also be telling, you know, I think that depending on how people solve problems, um, sometimes they hit it off intellectually and sometimes they don't. Um, And that's uh, maybe something valuable, but I think that the beer test is something that people think more about on site. Uh, What I would say is, you know, much more important than whether you want to have a beer with somebody. And I think that culture fit is often used as an exclusionary tactic, right? And that's one of the issues that people have with it is, you know, you're just using this nebulous notion of culture fit to not hire somebody that doesn't look like you or doesn't act like Mm -hmm. you. That isn't to say, though, that I think culture fit is, is not a valid thing to test for. I just think that there are other dimensions of culture fit that are more relevant and interesting. So for instance, if you work at a startup, 
uh, chances are you want an engineer whose uh, outlook is going to be a bit more pragmatic, right? Like you don't want somebody that is so academic that they can't prioritize tasks effectively mm -hmm. and left to their own devices will like spend their time doing, and this is going to sound very snarky. I have no issue with academics, but like if they're going to spend their time doing like proofs on the company dime, that's like not the right thing. Or if they just go down some crazy rabbit hole and emerge months later with some like really elegant solution. In the meantime, your company ran out of money because you had to build an MVP, right? So like those things, like engineering culture fit, I think is really valuable and something that should be dug into. The beer test, less so. And some of the other things that I've heard throughout my time in tech is in technical interviews, you can write in pseudocode, write in whatever language you feel most comfortable with. What role does the language you code in play in the interview process? Yeah, we've done a little bit of research on that. What I was trying to get at is like, If somebody tells you, oh, don't worry about it, like write in pseudocode, what matters is the algorithm and the logic and the steps, can they get away with that? Yep. Uh, so that's an interesting question. So I think that in the perfect world, mm -hmm. I think that would be the case. And I think when interviewers say it, they want it to be true. Okay. I'm, but I'm not actually convinced it is. Um, for instance, if you look at our data, um, having seen an interview question in the past, right? makes it much more likely that you're going to pass the interview, right? And if it were really just about how you thought, it wouldn't be about practice so much as it would be about just kind of bringing your raw intellectual potential and having somebody just tap into that. But that's not what happens um, because interviewers are human and uh, you can confuse potential for, you know, having seen the problem before and it's really hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. So I think that some of this is also on the interviewer, right? The best interviewers are people that can tease those things apart, but many interviewers don't actually want to be doing it. They don't want to be there. They want to get back to work. This is something that they have to do, and it's part of their job, but it's not their favorite. And then if you get one of these interviewers, they're just looking for every reason to discount you, especially if, you know, depending on the incentive structure their employer has, they generally want you, like everyone always says that false positives are worse than false negatives. So letting through someone that ends up being below your bar is much worse than saying no to everybody. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of incentivized to always say no because then if you advocate for somebody and then they end up not being good, that's on you. And why would you use your political capital, right? So this is another reason why I think a single interview is just not that indicative. Um, and multiple interviews with different interviewers are much more telling. So when an interviewer says, I don't care, what language you code in, that may or may not be true. It also depends on what languages they know, and it depends on how senior they are. If you're a really senior engineer and you've worked in like five or ten different languages in your career, at this point you're probably pretty zen and you probably hate all programming languages equally. <laughs> and you don't, you don't care like what people are doing and you're sophisticated enough where even if they're writing something in some really obscure functional language you've never seen, you can tease apart what they're doing and, and say, hey, that thing you're doing is weird. Can you explain to me how that works? Or, you know, maybe I don't know idiomatic like Ruby on Rails, um, can you use for loops instead of this weird thing you're doing, right? <laughs> That's fine. But it takes a certain level of sophistication and experience to do that well. And if you're a junior interviewer who's green, keeping all that stuff in your head and then asking a question that maybe you haven't even asked a lot yet, and then um, not having a lot of past interview experience to calibrate against can be overwhelming. I think everyone's trying to do the right thing. And I think doing the right thing is really, really hard. Yes, definitely. If you could change one thing right now instantaneously in the way companies do technical interviews, what would it be? I wish that companies would 
generally just be more open to new approaches. I think that it, this isn't even about interviewing necessarily, it's just about something that we've seen as we've tried to sell the product. And we've been very fortunate, you know, we have um, dozens of really great companies that we work with. So I'm not complaining, but uh, sometimes people making operational changes can take a lot of time. And even though everybody as an individual has the best intentions, seeing change happen, especially in larger companies, is really tough. Mm -hmm. So if there's one thing I could change, and this isn't even about interviewing, I think it's just about organizational structure and maybe even a little bit of human nature, yeah. it would just be um, openness to trying new stuff and potentially failing and just being willing to run the same kinds of experiments that you would run if you were iterating on some lean product in your process, right? And treating, you know, I know hiring is a cost center, but I wish sometimes people treated it as a profit center and were just much more willing to think about long-term versus short-term gains. So that's, you know, this is just a little aspirational, but in that world, I think that hiring would probably be a lot fairer. And sometimes we would try crazy stuff and it would blow up in our faces, but we probably collectively arrive at a better solution than we have today. And then we'd stop just mindlessly copying what all the big companies do because we're scared to take risks. Well, Aileen, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. I really like talking to you about this topic of interviewing. Yeah, uh, it was such a pleasure. Um, thank you again for having me.